I thank you for who you are because it defines it defines who we are as a as a people. I pray that you will speak boldly to your people, including myself. I pray that you will speak to each and every person's heart here. I pray that you encourage them by your spirit. I pray that you would illuminate the texts that we will study today. And I pray that you will help us to surrender our hearts to you. So we can love you more than anything in this life. In the words of John the Baptist, I pray that I, as a minister of your gospel, will decrease and my Lord Jesus Christ will increase. We are here for him, to adore him, to love him, and to worship him. I pray this in his name. Amen. Um, Mark, if you don't mind, can you put that on full screen? In the year of 1899, a young Hungarian boy was born. The young boy grew up on a farm with his family. But due to financial hardships, his family lost the farm, causing them to move to the inner city. Perhaps relocating to the inner city inspired the young boy in many ways since it afforded him different opportunities. Around the age of eight, the young boy took singing lessons, sang in the church choir, and even considered becoming a priest. Now, a teenager, his father sent him to a disciplinary school, and he despised his father for sending him there, so he intentionally failed his classes as an act of antagonism towards his father. All he wanted was to attend classical art school. After the death of his father and his mother, he moved to the city of Vienna to pursue his dream in architect, music, and painting. And it was around this time he was exposed to Germany nationalism that affected his political views and eventually the entire world. This young boy who grew up on a farm studied art, architecture, and music performance is known as Adolf Hitler. As he was serving in the war in World War One, which shaped Adolf Hitler theology and ideology, which led him to believe that led him to believe in anti-Semitism, which is hatred and prejudice. 
When Germany lost the war in World War I, Hitler's patriotism grew even stronger. And his belief that Jewish people and the like were enemies of Germany. His charisma as an oratorical uh, public speaker and his skills as a political leader helped him to become the dictator in Germany. He had absolute authority in Germany. As the dictator uh, of Germany, he established a policy of the removal of the Jews, which is known as the Holocaust. This policy resulted in the death of six million Jewish people, along with the deaths of Romanian people, gypsies, and other people alike. Altogether, Hitler and his party is responsible for the deaths of at least 20 million people. There were many people who opposed Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime. One person in particular was a Christian pastor, Christian German pastor by the name of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was not only a theologian, but a spy. The Nazi regime arrested him in April 1943, accused him, along with other plotters, of uh, trying to assassinate Adolf Hitler. They later imprisoned and transferred him to a Nazi concentration camp to be executed by hanging. I want you to listen to the words of Eber Hart, a student and friend of Bonhoeffer's, who witnessed Bonhoeffer's execution. He writes, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to God. I was deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed. So devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then clammed the few steps to the gallows. Brave and composed, his death ensued after a few seconds. In almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Hitler's name has become a euphemism uh, to describe evilness, and rightly so. Diedrich Bonhoeffer and many people alike highlights prevailing righteousness. God has always allowed evilness to occur in human history. But he has always caused righteousness to prevail. Despite any circumstances, evilness leaves 
an ugly stain in human history, but righteousness is the antidote that fades those stains away. There are many people to compare Adolf Hitler and D.J. Bonhoeffer too. Unfortunately, we see this comparison between Herod the Great and the righteous couple, Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. Therefore, as you can see behind me, today's message is, Herod, is titled Herod the Great and the Righteous Couple. Because there is a contrast of evilness and righteousness between those characters in our text this morning. Or should we say a contrast of darkness and light? Uh, Please open your Bible to Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. We are continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. And we're picking up Luke chapter 1, verses 5 and 7. The text reads as follows. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, if you passively read verse 5 without thinking, you will miss the importance of what Luke is communicating to us. Two weeks ago, I have mentioned that Luke is a historian. And in verse 5, he has provided us with historical information, giving us a timeline and setting for the entire chapter of Luke chapter 1. According to verse 5, Luke writes, In the days of Herod, king of Judea. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. There is much to say about Herod the Great. Uh, He was great for good and bad reasons. During the reign of the Roman Empire, Herod began his career as a governor of Galilee uh, because his father previously was the governor of Judea. He began that career at the age of 25. Uh, Caesar Augustus recognized Herod as a strategic leader in Israel. So after the death of Herod's father, Caesar promoted him and gave him the title of king of Judea. Herod was known for ruling with an iron fist. That is, he had military skills to stomp out any rebellion against the Roman Empire. 
proving his loyalty to Rome. By birth, Herod was an Edomite. Edomites were descendants of Esau. Esau is the brother of Jacob, and traditionally they both, Esau and Jacob, were both rivals, which passed down to their descendants. Edom, uh, Edomites and Israel became tribal rivals as well. As to say, Edomites were traditionally enemies of Israel. So the very idea of Herod being an Edomite and was given kingship as king of Judea was insulting to the Jewish people because they knew that Herod was not Jewish. But he was a smart man. He knew he had to be politically and socially uh, winsome towards the Jewish people. He wanted the Jewish people's approval. So he established so that he can be established as king in the Jewish region. To make that happen, Herod built many buildings uh, for the Jewish people. He restored the Jewish temple. That's the same temple in uh, Jesus' ministry. He built water ducts that brought water to the city of Jerusalem. And if you like, you can visit those ruins today. All the building projects that Herod conducted. And even when the famine struck in Jerusalem, Herod was gracious to melt down gold from his own palace to give to the people for relief. To give to the poor. Politically and socially speaking, he was like modern leaders. For example, he was like a leader who wants to build a wall for a border protection. And a previous leader who made health care a law. I'm sure some of y'all get that later, but we're moving on. Despite... <laughs> Despite all the good things that Herod did, he was one of the most cruelest, sadistic, paranoid, dark person in human history. Alistair Bed said that he was one of the most nasty person in history. Herod's negative qualities overshadowed his positive ones. His cruelty had no end. He was constantly afraid that someone will usurp or disrupt his power or displace him as king so he protected his power at all costs. For example, his cruelty and paranoia caused him to believe that his own family was conspiring against him. So what did he do? He murdered, he murdered his second wife, his wife's brother, his wife's mother, and three of his own sons. 
It has to be recorded that Caesar Augustus, the leader of the Roman Empire, stated that it is better to be a pig than one of Herod's sons. That is, pigs are more are slaughtered in a more dignifying manner than Herod's sons. Herod tortured his sons to death. Therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that Herod tried to murder Jesus when he was a baby boy. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, Matthew writes about how wise men traveled to Jerusalem searching for Jesus. Once, and once they arrived to Herod, the wise men said, where is Jesus who has been born king of the Jews. They went on to say, For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. When the wise men pronounced that Jesus was king of the Jews, The text says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, that Herod was troubled. To say that a king was born was a threat to Herod. It threatened Herod's kingship. So, what did Herod do? He secretly told the wise men to find the child to bring and bring the child back to him so he too can worship the child. But God warned the wise men not to return to Herod, informing them that he was seeking to destroy the child. When Herod realized that he was tricked by the wise men, He sent out his army and strategically murdered thousands and thousands of male children at the age of two and under. You have to ask yourself this question about Herod. How paranoid can you be to be threatened by a baby laying in a manger? Since Herod the Great was unsuccessful in murdering Jesus, Herod's legacy eventually seceded. In Mark chapter 3 and also in Mark chapter 12 verse 13 illustrates that a political party named the Herodians were created because of Herod the Great political influence in the Roman Empire. According to Mark chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, tells us that Jesus healed a man with a withered hand on a Sabbath day. And the Pharisees went and had a council or a meeting with the Herodians to try to figure out how to destroy Jesus. All because Jesus was performing miracles on the Sabbath. The Pharisees knew that they could not put anyone to death because they didn't have the legal authority to do so. 
But the Herodians did. They were a branch under the Roman Empire. The Herodians had the authority to exact capital punishment. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 12, verse 13 and 17. says Mark chapter 12 verse 13 and 17 I'm not going to read all of it um But this is when the Pharisees and Herodians are together to test Jesus about paying taxes. And for the sake of time, I'm only going to read verses 13 and 14. It says in verse 13, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true And do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? They were trying to trap Jesus in his words. If Jesus would have told them to not pay taxes to Caesar, it would have been considered as an insurrection, meaning a crime against the Roman Empire. And the Pharisees and Herodians knew what they were doing. If we couldn't get Jesus according to the Jewish laws, we can get him according to Roman laws. This is why Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. The person who does, (laughs) the person who does our, I have to say this, but this is funny to me. The person who does our uh, payroll taxes for the church. Yeah, I met him, I met him once or twice and about taxes, right? And I told him about my taxes. And his favorite saying is to render to Caesar what is Caesar and not a penny more. (laughs) (laughs) Nevertheless, the Pharisees and the Herodians eventually murdered Jesus, not with their own hands, but through the means of Pontius Pilate. Herod the Great was unsuccessful, murdering Jesus when he was a baby. But Herod's legacy, the Herodians, went through the means of Pontius Pilate to put Jesus to death. What we can deduce this too is that you and I must know that a person's sin affects everyone. For example, if a spouse is having an affair on 
her husband, it's not only going to affect the husband, but the entire family and the extended family. Last year, we witnessed on the news about, about one man's sin in the city of Las Vegas. Went on a shooting spree and killed 59 people. That one sin not only affected the 59 people, but generations of people. Mothers, fathers, daughters, uncles. And this is what we see in our text. That Herod's legacy affected millions of people just because of his own sins. And as we can see, Luke transitioned from telling us the historical background of Herod the Great and turned our attention to the righteous couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Luke is illustrating a stark contrast between darkness and light, sin and righteousness, hopelessness and hopefulness. Like I said, Herod the Great can represent darkness, sin, and hopelessness, while Zechariah and Elizabeth represented the light, righteousness, and hopefulness. By the end of chapter 1, we will learn several things about Zechariah. We will learn about Zechariah being a priest, which we, are, which we will discuss this morning. Zechariah's unbelief when he faced the angel Gabriel. Zechariah's punishment for not believing in the words of Gabriel. And Zechariah's prophecy. I think this is important to know since Israel was under the Roman occupation, the high priestly office was personally selected by Herod. He had the authority to allow or to continue to allow someone to hold the high priestly office or disallow them. However, Zechariah was not a high priest but a priest serving within his division. As we can see in verse 5, Zechariah was from the division of Abijah. There were 24 divisions of priests, which was a total of 18,000 priests. Each division was served in the temple on a weekly basis. On a weekly basis. And Zechariah's division was the eighth division. And it was his turn to serve in the temple. As we can see that according to verses 8 and 9. The name Zechariah is a common name in the Bible. It means God has remembered. Again, Zechariah was a priest and priests were responsible for sacrificing animals teaching people the word of God and performing purification ceremonies. 
They performed uh, ceremonies like the Passover uh, or the Feast of Tabernacles and etc. I want you to be mindful that the priests were butchers. They were covered in blood from head to toe, slaughtering animals on a daily basis. Thousands and thousands of animals in the temple as an act of remission of sins. They had many festivals like the Day of the Atonement and the Purification. But in terms of, of purification, look at Luke chapter 2, verses 22 and 24. It shows that Jesus' mother, Mary, presented Jesus to the priests for purification. Joseph and Mary gave Simon two turtle doves, according to the law of Moses, which signifies that they weren't, uh, they were not rich people, because if they were, they could have given a lamb or some other form of livestock. When we read the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews chapter 7, we come to the realization that the priesthood was a foreshadow of Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 27, I mean 26 and 27, Christ Jesus says that Christ Jesus is the perfect high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above heavens. He has no needs like those priests, high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins. And then for those, for the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered himself up. I say this because if you think about the context when Luke chapter 1, Israel was a theocratic society, meaning that Israel was governed by God's laws. They became an apostate society, a false religious society. However, when Christ came, he established a new covenant, abolishing the old one. So there was no need for the priesthood in the sense of having 18,000 priests because Jesus Christ fulfilled the priest. The office, the high priest's office. It is good that the high priesthood belongs to Jesus because he is the mediator, allowing believers to enter God's presence only through him. Furthermore, and the temple was destroyed in AD 70, which is only 37 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there was no need for a a high priestly office anymore. Jesus prophesied this. He said, The days will come when there will be left here one no stone left upon the other, that another 
The days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon the other that will be not thrown down. Like I said, this means that the office of the high priest through the descendants of Aaron, something that Zechariah was, he was a descendant of Aaron. Aaron had two sons. Two of Aaron's sons died by fire because of God, which left him two remaining sons. Therefore, the only way a person can have their sins forgiven is not by sacrificing animals. It is by believing in the atonement of Jesus Christ, of what he has done for humanity. And I say that, and I and I'm not trying to bore you to death with all the details, but I think this is very important within this context. Because you look at the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah didn't, didn't come from a richly priestly family. He probably came from a village in Judea. But at the same time, him and Elizabeth was faithful in the obedience of God's commandments. This is what we see. You know, I have a privilege of speaking to Liz Eves on a regular basis, and I'm now I truly understand why Vic Eves is blessed to have her. <laughs> On a contract, on a constant basis, just by me observing Liz, has demonstrated her faithfulness and un, well, unwavering faithfulness toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And like Liz, Elizabeth, the person who Luke writes about, have those same character traits. I've mentioned that. We will learn several things about Zechariah, but that goes for Elizabeth as well. For Elizabeth, we will learn about her unwavering faithfulness for the Lord, her humility, her zeal for the Lord. All of this is shown in chapter 1 in Luke's gospel. It shouldn't be surprising to us, and I say that because of Elizabeth's name. She was living up to the meaning of her name. Her name literally means that God is an oath. In other words, God does not break his promises. I believe that her name shows her commitment towards God despite whatever she was facing. She was holding on to the promises of God. So when you glance over to verses 6 and 7, we understand why. Look at Luke chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Elizabeth grew up around a family who were righteous. She was a descendant of Aaron. So perhaps her brother's and her father were priests. 
That means that Zechariah married a woman who was godly, who was nurtured. But I want you to focus more on verse 6. One of the remarkable facts about Zechariah and Elizabeth is not that they were both descendants of Aaron. It is not that Zechariah was a priest or Elizabeth was a was part of the priestly family. It was that they both were righteous people. In verse 6, Luke writes, they both were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Ask yourself, what makes a person righteous before the Lord God? What makes a person to be declared just before a holy God? We cannot say that righteousness is not attainable because Elizabeth and Zechariah will prove us wrong. Furthermore, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, living a holy lifestyle is obtainable. But Christ hasn't come yet. In this text. If you don't believe this, then explain to me. Explain to me the life of Enoch. Or the life of Elijah. To say that righteousness is not attainable is false. Zacharias, Elizabeth, Enoch and Elijah's life prove us wrong. Enoch walked before God and did not die. Elijah's life walked in the in righteousness and was taken up to heaven with God. They were both Zechariah and, and Elizabeth were both regenerated by the Holy Spirit because of their obedience in the Lord Jesus, I mean, in the Lord God. They were waiting, they were holding on to the promises of God. That is to say, because of their faithfulness and obedience, they were declared just. They were declared righteous. This is the same thing that the Lord God said to Abraham when Abraham believed by faith. God said, you are righteous. This wasn't a self-righteousness. It also shows that it was possible to obey all of God's laws, every single one of them. What I mean by this, we can, we can do this today. We live in a land that is governed by laws. And if you don't break not a single 
law in this land. That means that you're righteous according to the law. You're not a lawbreaker. But in God's eyes, that doesn't mean that you're righteous according to his laws. Do you see the contrast between that? I say that because the Apostle Paul had a self-righteous state about him. He even said that he was blameless and righteous under the law. Communicating to us that it is possible to live under the law as righteous, but by faith, it wasn't what I mean that you need to live by faith instead of living according to the law. That's what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6. Paul said that he was righteous and blameless under the law, but Paul had a self-righteousness. And we see that in the book of Acts. That Paul persecuted Christians because he believed in the law and he held the law to the, to, to the upteenth degree. But he needed to be righteous by faith. And this is what we see with Zechariah and Elizabeth. That they were both righteous and blameless according to the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So their obedience matched their faith. Luke intentionally focused on Zechariah and Elizabeth because he is setting up the birth of story of John the Baptist and later on Jesus' birth. Luke's gospel is the only gospel that highlights the birth of John the Baptist. The apostle John, his gospel starts off with uh, John the Baptist's ministry when he was in his adulthood, just as well as Matthew and Mark's gospel. And I'm glad that Luke start with John the Baptist's parents because it highlights several important truths. And I'm not going to, I'm just going to list these as bullet points, uh, some of them. The first truth is that the difficulty of not being able to have biological children. They were married. Uh, There were many married couples in the Old Testament who were barren. Rachel was barren. Hannah was barren. So especially within the Jewish uh, culture, uh, when a woman was barren, it meant that, that it had a tremendous burden. Because as the father or the husband died, she didn't have any sustainable income.
Jewish society uh, for a Jewish woman to go childless was difficult as it is today. Number two, the importance of having godly parents and raising up godly children. Having godly parents and raising up godly children. And I say that is because when they will give birth to John the Baptist, John the Baptist have the best of both worlds. His father is a godly person and his mother is a godly person. So he was nurtured in a godly household. And this is one way we can really understand John the Baptist's message about Christ. Number three, Zechariah and Elizabeth shows us what model parents ought to be. Their lives was not really focused on what they needed to accomplish. It wasn't focused on what they could have had or the difficult circumstances that they were facing. It was focused on the Lord God. And out of that, it dictated their very lives. I want you to always remember that your theology and my theology dictates what we believe and do. If you believe that God is a selfish, unholy person, then you will live according to that standard. But their theology dictated their very lives. Most importantly, when we look at the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth, their lives show that God is able to accomplish the impossible. God is able to accomplish the impossible. For example, turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 35 through 37, and let's read this together. It says in Luke chapter 1, verses 35 and 37, And the angel answered her, speaking to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Are you picking this up? And the reason I say that is because we have two females. One is old and advanced and aged and barren. The other is young, who did not have a man, but she was going to bear a child anyway. This shows us the nature 
of God Himself. To announce that Mary will become a mother without knowing a, knowing a man shows that anything is possible for God. And it goes for, um, for the life of Elizabeth. So when we think about barrenness, when we think about bleakness, we cannot apply that to the God we serve. Because Zachariah, he wasn't a spring chicken, as an old-timer would say to me. He was advanced in age two. And I'm, forgive me, I'm not trying to be offensive, but his well was dried up as well. (laughs) But this is the point. These three verses set up the story for the entire chapter of chapter one. That God is going to to intervene on the behalf of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then the story transitions to Mary because God is answering a call. You know, John the Baptist's life, and this is something that we're going to pick up next week, John the Baptist's life will help us to understand why God answered Zechariah's prayer. It will help us understand that God has answered the prayers not only for Zechariah and Elizabeth, but for the entire Jewish nation and furthermore for humanity. Because between the intertestament period of the Old and New Testament, 400 years of silence went by. The Old Testament, the last Old Testament book is Malachi. And the very first Testament book, New Testament book, is Matthew. And between those two books, 400 years of silence, God did not, was not speaking. So the climax of John the Baptist's life starts here. It started with the parents, I mean, John the Baptist's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. God is going to now speak. And that's what we will uncover this upcoming week. You know, I started my the sermon introduction by telling the life and story of Adolf Hitler and Dietrich Bonhoeffer for a purpose. Because just like Adolf Hitler and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, how they represented, how Adolf Hitler represented uh, evilness and darkness, and Bonhoeffer represented light. Same thing for Herod and Elizabeth and uh, Zechariah. In our time, how can I put it? I want y'all to always remember, when you think that God is not speaking, he is. 
He is. Germany has rich history, not just because of Adolf Hitler's massacre and genocide program. In the year 1500, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther rose up against the tyranny of the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church. And out of that gave us the liberty of, of what we believe in as Christians, which we turn and coin as Protestantism. Excuse me. And I may add, just because of what Martin Luther did, when everything seems diary and, and bleak, to fight against the Roman Catholic Church, inspire a young black boy and the young black boy's father by the main name of Martin Luther King Jr., who fought against prejudice and racism and bigotry, who led a peaceful march. Martin Luther King's name wasn't Martin Luther King when he was born. His father changed his name because of that German monk. I say that because we see, not only in, in our text this morning, that God uses people when things are going wrong. He did it with Zechariah and Elizabeth. He did it with the German monk, Diedrich, also Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for that you have given us the understanding that you will rise up people for your cause. You will help us in a time of need. Just when things seem dark, you give us light. When there is silence, you speak. You have done this with the parents of John the Baptist, who who John the Baptist was a forerunner of Christ to accomplish your plans. So, Lord, I thank you and I praise you in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you don't, um, I want you to prepare your heart and your mind for the offerings. Let me pray over the offering.